Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Matt shares his secret ingredient for killer bechamel sauce. We are joined by a humanitarian who connects logical fallacies to high fantasy to Trump. And I share how to stay moisturized. Woman, woman, tell me your name. Let me have my life reclaimed. Waiting, wondering, all of my life. Oh, how, how did you like that? Try to. Uh, I thought it was good. Uh, it's funny when you put it down in front of us, we were kind of like. This is just a throw-together-whatever uh, dinner, but it was uh, scrummy, man. Yeah, no, I, I mean, like, it's the first time that I tried um, those turkey wieners. <laughs> like, I, I don't know, like, turkey turkey hot dogs, I guess? like Turkey wieners? <laughs> well, yeah, like, I don't know what to call them. Yeah, it's funny. It wasn't until I uh, had one that I remember having those when I was a kid. Like, we used to always get, like, chicken wieners stuff like that yeah and these ones came up really fast on the barbecue it's weird that they taste just like normal hot dogs eh? yeah like why is that also i read the package after and it said like mechanically separated turkey i don't i don't know what that means well i've seen people mechanically separate turkeys before oh that's true yeah yeah Yeah. slaughterhouses and whatnot but um so that was a good throw together but uh we figured uh we made this promise early on we might as well talk about some cooking um in the early episode, I think it was like episode one or two, it had some of that delicious uh, turkey and ham. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing. Have you made any other scrummy dinners? Uh, I've been doing a lot of chicken. So I did a, kind of like a sweet chili uh, marinated uh, chicken breast on the barbecue. How do you make a sweet chili marinade like gooey? Like, is that something that I, is that just the sugar? Yeah, it's the sugar. So I used like um, brown sugar and then um, some sort of, I forget what it's called. It's like liquid sugar. Oh, uh, not corn syrup. No, it's kind of like corn syrup. Uh, is it agava sugar? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, chili flakes um, and then let that sit and then kind of drizzle it on top of the chicken. It, it was pretty good. Um, I think it needed a bit more pepper. I think the key when you're barbecuing with sweet is to have pepper. Oh, you barbecued it as well. Oh, yeah. So then it like caramelized up the sugar, like it browned it up. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that sounds good. So the thing to watch for when you're doing that is like uh, barbecuing with a lot of barbecue sauce. It can really gum up the grill. So, oh, yeah, for sure. So my technique has always been to use indirect heat, always yeah. indirect heat. Yeah. Um, and then once it's cooked for like, you know, 40, 45 minutes, which seems long on the barbecue, it does. Uh, then I put it on direct heat, but just at the end, yeah, just, just to kind of just to char it up. And I always like uh, whenever possible, I always try to get uh, skin free and boneless chicken breast. Um, Pourquoi? Find it less fatty. I find it a little bit easier to cook with. Uh, sometimes you get oh the... yeah, skinless for sure. The fat on uh, the chicken skin is kind of gnarly, man. Yeah, yeah. But what about the bone? Like uh, the bone, I know some people are like. They don't like the looking at a bone and a piece of meat, but like le- it releases so much flavor and it keeps it kind of moist. I find, especially with chicken. Yeah, sometimes like uh, we'll get the big pack of chicken that has the bone in from Costco, uh, but when the boneless is on sale, I prefer that. I think ultimately it just comes down to ease. So I can put the chicken breast on indirect heat, forget about it, go do other stuff, come back, 
you know, seared a little bit on the, on the, on the flame. Uh, and it's kind of like barbecue to plate. You don't have to worry about it. There's no cleanup, no mess. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've always made really flavorful chicken. It's never been dull. Um, my wife recently, she, uh, went grocery shopping and bought a, uh, a turkey drumstick. Like just, oh yeah, just those drumstick. are fantastic. Yeah. Oh, amazing. But she didn't know that. I hope she listens to this. She didn't know that that's where the, some of the dark meat comes from. Most of it comes from. Yeah. And, from and then I also kind of explained that like most of a turkey is dark meat. Like you got the breast of course, but like. The rest of it is dark meat. Yeah. And I don't know. I liked it. I got it in the fridge right now. I'm going to try to make a stock. I'm probably going to get some tips off of uh, Bill here, the uh, the French-Canadian, <laughs> for some uh, tips on how to make a proper stock. But Because um, I don't know. Anytime I've made a stock, it doesn't really come out right, or I feel like I'm not doing it correctly. Like, Do you have any stock tips? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, first, get big bones. So you don't want to use the the little the little guys. That's just messy. I know some people do, and then they cheesecloth it out. I, I don't mess with that. I just go with the big bones, and um, I always throw in some meat with it. Yeah, that's that's some, kind of my. Yeah, I left some like on the bone, like because I know that kind of like disintegrates. Because I just want to make like a turkey soup, basically. Right. Yeah, and then it's just a question of keeping it in there for a long time. Like I'll like when I make a like a turkey stock, uh, I'll do it. Uh, you know. Set it up in the morning, so probably around nine nine thirty, and I'll have that on a low boil until maybe three or four, like that that amount of time. And you really boil it, and then you cool it, uh, strain it, uh, put it in the fridge. So I put it in the fridge uh, overnight, and then I use it the next day. Typically, I won't use the stock the same day that I make it. Yeah, you almost have to let it get happy in the fridge a little bit, right? Flavors come out, and there's something about um, letting it cool down, like the fat kind of solidifies or something, and then uh, taking it out the next day, just reheat it, you know, use it in your soup, use it in, uh, yeah. you know, I make rice with uh, turkey stock, delicious. Huh. Um, yeah. And you just use it for everything. Anywhere you'd use water, you use stock. Like Basically. That's the idea. Yeah. And if, you know, you're making it yourself, you can, uh, you know, mess around with the flavors a bit. You can make it spicy. You can make it sweeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can make it uh, as salty as you want. Like, we don't cook with salt. Um, very, like, a pinch, maybe. Oh, really? Um, I love my salt, man. Yeah. yeah. So I can't buy store bought or made uh, stock. It's too salty. Even the half mm-hmm. salt stuff, like, uh, yeah, I find it's a it way lot of too salt. salty. Yeah, because it needs to stay on a shelf, like, out in a supermarket, like, in. Room temperature, essentially, in a freaking carton. Yeah. It's kind of gross. Oh, here's a question for you, Matt. Have you have you used, uh, like, bovril? No, what's that? Well, I, like, bovril, like, uh, partic- I'm thinking of the beef bovril. It's the... Kind I, of, I've literally never heard of that. Comes in, uh, <laughs> comes in a glass or a plastic container. It's brand name bovril. It's basically a condensed uh, beef stock oh does comes it come out, in like a yellow and green like yes. sort of labeling yeah. yeah yeah that's the classic right yeah it's the yeah. classic one yeah H- have you used that kind of stuff yeah for sure that's what i would have like as just like cubes if like you needed like a stock but like i i want to make a real stock but is that a good like alternative well i've used the beef one i've seen uh, on the shelves some chicken i haven't seen turkey yeah. uh so like i don't use a lot of it um but it's good to give it a little like boost you just throw like one in there maybe well I've never used it for a stock. I'm going to tell you what I use it for. Mm. Um, so you were over one night, and I made uh, a spaghetti 
sauce. Oh, I forgot about the spaghetti. I even took a picture of it. Spaghetti sauce. Oh, you have a picture of that? Yeah, I do. We'll post it. Oh. Yeah. Um, But I I did it with beef cubes. Uh, Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, No. What? You made the spaghetti noodles with beef cubes? No, the sauce with beef cubes. I put beef cubes in the spaghetti. Yeah. No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Like actual cubes of beef. Cubes of beef. Oh, I thought you meant like the bouillon cubes. No, no. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah, totally. There's beef in the sauce. Yeah. Like falls off the fork. Yeah. So we don't eat a lot of beef at my house. Mm. It's one of these things that is kind of an exceptional sort of meat to eat. So I took the opportunity. Matt came over. Uh, decided to to use up some beef cubes that I had in the freezer. But what I did was I slowly sautéed them with some onions, some garlic, um, some oregano, some parsley, some uh, crushed uh, black pepper, and then I added some of the bovril. And I mixed that in. Huh. So that I I don't know I don't know why I did it I just reached for it and I used it like the, it was unopened it had been in the cupboard for were, like maybe a year were the cubes like pre marinated no or it something? wasn't cubes it's like a liquid bovril is like this liquid yeah uh, yeah but like with the the meat itself was it like pre marinated sort of stuff or it had like a steak spice on it okay huh yeah, yeah no it was um there was a lot of depth of flavor like it was and. I remember, of course, like Phil is like the most understated guy in the world. He's like, oh, this is, I just threw the spaghetti sauce together and it's like, great. But, um, but yeah, it was like, it came together perfectly. There was like big hunks of meat, but it, like when you touch it with a fork, it just disintegrated off into the plate. Yeah, that was pretty good. It was pretty good. That's why I took a picture of it. Yeah. yeah. And it's, the same, it's the same recipe I use when uh, we want to uh, eat no meat. So most of the week we eat no meat in the house. It's very rare that we actually have meat. We'll have meat maybe like uh, maybe one or two days. Um, it's the same recipe, except I just added the the beef cubes in and yeah. it worked out great. Yeah, everybody should learn a simple tomato sauce. Like that is one of those like um, universal sort of base recipes. Like I think that and um, a bechamel sauce, like how to make a simple cream sauce on the stovetop. I'm going to stop you. I've yeah. put up my hand. Stop that. Uh, walk us through how do you make your bechamel sauce? Oh, it's so simple. Um, big hunk of butter. I don't measure anything when I cook. So big no, hunk no, of I don't measure butter. Anything. And then you want to put enough flour in there that it becomes almost like a yellowish paste in the bottom. And you brown that up just a little bit. to get a little bit of like brownish color on it. And then they say slowly add the milk, but I get like halfway to the amount of milk that I want to use for the cream sauce. And then I just dump the rest in. And then you just keep whisking, whisking, whisking. Um, use a, um, yeah, if you have a metal pan or a pot, you should use a silicone whisk or something, but, um, whatever I, I never do. I don't even own one. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but, um, yeah, you just mix that up on like maybe like three or four on your oven and it will just thicken up magically. And then boom, just throw some cheese into that. And a secret, um, that I got from a friend's mom, uh, with any cream sauce, especially cheese sauces, um, put some dried mustard in there. It gives it like a snappy tang that you can't really replicate. Obviously, salt and pepper as well. Dried mustard in the bechamel. Absolutely. Heard it here first, folks. <laughs> um, well, welcome to the show. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, uh, co-hosted by myself, Philip Primo. And Matt Sanderson. It's the podcast that it, that uh, expands on social sciences, humanities, and arts. Uh, we do it through things like book reviews. We do it through uh, interviews. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had on uh, Evan, the anarchist, uh, pedestrian anarchist. Yeah. Um, Disillusioned Leninist. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great interview, by the way. I, I enjoyed it. 
Um, but basically, you know, this podcast is uh, us uh, and friends and colleagues and people who uh, we appreciate their work. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Uh, we try to make the uh, the show uh, funny, whimsical, lighthearted. Um, sometimes we'll touch on important stuff. Uh, our commitment to you is that all the things that we say, all the books that we recommend or reviews we do, uh, are our honest opinion. We're not getting any money for it, so yet. So yet, they are all honest opinions. Although you know, I think uh, we could be open to the idea of having. Some oh sponsors. yeah, no, I I am not opposed. So uh, yeah, I'm uh, willing to sell out for anyone. Uh, we'll tell you how to do that. In a <laughs> yeah, contact Matt directly. <laughs> so one of the things that we do on this show is um, we do an intro uh, where Matt and I just kind of talk about sometimes our weeks. We talk about cooking. We talk about sports. Um, then the second, and that usually goes, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes. The second part of the show is, uh, we'll have on a guest today, um, you know, who, who will come join us, but sometimes we'll review some works. Uh, sometimes we'll pick up on topics that we find interesting and that we hope that you find interesting as well. And every show, um, we finish off with some recommendations. Yes, we do do that, Phil. I got nothing, man. You got nothing. <laughs> nothing. I just want to start the show. <laughs> okay. Well, before we start the show, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell, tell us, everyone tell the people how they can reach us. Okay. Well, you can reach us on Twitter, um, and our Twitter at uh, the underscore s i m underscore p o d. That's the simpod. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail dot com. Our website is the sim dot podbean dot com. Where we are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher, we're on other podcatcher apps. Please uh, leave us a review. Drop us a line. Tell us what you think. Uh, really, you know, Matt and I spend a lot of time on the show, uh, writing the show notes, recording, doing all that kind of stuff, the research that goes behind it. We'd love to hear from you. would love to know what you like, what you dislike, um, and send us your suggestions for future shows. So uh, how, about, uh, how about we get on with the show? Let's do it. Hey everyone, welcome back. We have a special guest with us. Um, personally, I think uh, she's the most intelligent, uh, most beautiful, most well-read, uh, well-rounded uh, in all facets of life sort of individual. But I see Matt smiling. You're such a sweetheart. I, I can't believe you waited this long to uh, tell me how you felt about me. Oh, Matt. Uh, well, <laughs> okay, I'm not. So you hear, you hear another laugh in the room. We have uh, Melanie Large, my my wonderful wife, on with us. Um, she's going to talk to us about logical fallacies, truth table, some some word that starts with S. Syllogism. You know, this Syllogism. is this is so far out of my experience with social sciences, humanities, and arts. I don't know about you, Matt. No, I'm I'm looking forward to learning more because, like, logical fallacies for one is something that I've used without knowing the meaning of, basically. So. When I heard that you were going to talk about that, I'm like, I'm probably just going to sit back and try to not make a lot of noise for a while. Well, why don't you say hi to everyone, uh, Mel? Hi, everyone. It's good to hi, be Mel. here. Hey. Hi, Matt. <laughs> hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Uh, 
so for all of our listeners who aren't in the room with us, there is which would be everybody. There, I hope there's, there's not people in the room right now. <laughs> <laughs> They're hiding in the closet right behind Phil. Uh, there is definitely some AL East contention in the hat world going on. I'm looking across from me. Matt is wearing a uh, one of those black and white throwback uh, Jays caps. Uh, Mel is sitting to my right, and she's wearing the on-field... Grossest. On-field Baltimore Orioles cap. Ugh. And I'm sitting here wearing my on-field Yankees cap. We're all looking at each other. We're not sure. <laughs> there's enough contempt in the room right you know, now, I think. Who's actually going to cast the first stone? <laughs> you know, there's warm drinks spread across the room, so I hope none of these get thrown. But Mel, um, why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about what you're going to talk about today um, and pick it up from there. Sure. So you mentioned logical fallacies, truth tables, syllogisms, some big fancy words. But my knowledge of this topic is by no means extensive. It's more of like a hobby interest than anything. Uh, I guess kind of my background, if you want to say such a thing, would be uh, in high school, I had to take this course called Theory of Knowledge. Well, that sounds interesting. In high school? Yeah, in high school. So I was in this program uh, called International Baccalaureate, and it was a mandatory asset or aspect, I'm sorry, of it. And um, it was basically a philosophy class. And one of the main things that we did in that class was talk about truth tables and uh, and fallacies because they're really interesting and have to do with argumentation. So like, does that, that, that reminds me of like logic, like Greek logic, like is this sort of like the methodology of doing like logical philosophy. Yes. Yeah, so my boy Aristotle is kind of uh, kind of the father of all of this, uh, and the truth table itself and the syllogism. So I'll just get right into that. So usually it's something that's composed of three phrases. Um, so I I came up with an example for you guys because I'm just such a big fan. So an example of a truth table slash syllogism would be all podcasts are on the internet. So that's a truth. Okay. Matt and Phil have a podcast. That's also a truth. Therefore, Matt and Phil are on the internet. Ah. So I, I, that's a syllogism. That's right a syllogism. There. Okay. okay. That, those are loaded in Aristotle then, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where the background is on that. So basically what I did there is I came up. It's almost always in threes. I mean, there's exceptions, but I don't want to get into that. Uh, like. This is usually like a two truths or an, a falsehood and a truth. There's other forms of it where it'll be like a if and statements or if mm. but, but those can be a little more complicated. So basically, the typical way of doing it would be truth, truth. So T, T, and T and T always would make another T. Uh, and then as soon so as. So two truths make a truth. Yeah. So that's where Phil and Matt are on the internet because podcasts are on. Hey, did you know that, Matt? We're on the internet. Uh, really? Are people listening to this? Hello? Is that what it is? Well, maybe <laughs> just maybe, the people in the closet. Maybe. So this seems, uh, Mel, like... Uh, I just called the syllogism. <laughs> this seems like it has to uh, have some sort of mathematical underpinning. It absolutely does, and it has a lot to do with programming, actually. So Ooh, the modern... like uh, code? Like, like as C++, in the pewters, or, yeah. In the pewters. Like in the interwebs yeah. and stuff. And that's why when I say, like, I have knowledge of this, I, it's by no means extensive. Like, people do PhDs in this sort of thing. 
um, and it's far reaching across a variety of fields. So my knowledge of it is I have a literature background, um, literature and pop culture. Um, so I come into it from more of a critical theory standpoint. Uh, it's definitely grounded in philosophy, but as I've said, it does definitely touch on computer science, logic, uh, like Boolean searches are related to truth tables. What's a, what's a Boolean search? That's like, I think that's the underpinning of most search engines is like when you search, um, I don't know, think of a topic you want me to research. West Wing. Yeah. So you search West Wing, but you don't want to see anything about Toby for some reason, even though he's the best character. So you would say West Wing, not Not. Toby. So that's like, um, like library search engines when you're looking for articles and things like that. They have that notation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Boolean, basically, and that's rooted in truth tables. So without going into, you know, specific examples, what you could see maybe from my initial example would be as soon as you add like a not statement into it, it would change the validity of the argument. Um, But you may also notice that in a syllogism, there's ways that it could easily come out with a truth, but not make any sense. Like what? So going back to my original example... You could say instead, podcasts are on the internet. Matt and Phil are on the internet. Therefore, Matt and Phil are a podcast. Oh, oh, weird. Wow. So that's like um, structurally correct, but yeah. um, factually incorrect? Yeah, exactly. Or logically incorrect? Well, not logically incorrect. It's logically, logically correct, correct. Yeah. but it's empirically false. Ah, right. Yes. Okay, so... So let me get this straight. You could have something that's logically correct. However, without understanding anything else outside of that logic, you would render that solution. But obviously that's not how we live our life. Like Matt and I, well, maybe Matt does, but I don't think that I'm a podcast. I don't know. You kind of look like a podcast. Well, maybe. <laughs> that was a slight A little burn. bit of a burn. Was that because of the Yankees hat? It was definitely because of the, the Yankees, Yankees hat. hat, yeah. So how do we get around, um, or maybe you'll introduce, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but how do we get around uh, coming to false conclusions in in these sorts of situations of syllogisms? So I don't necessarily have an answer to how we get around to dealing with false aspects of syllogisms, uh, because the very fact of syllogisms is that they're grounded in truth statements. So there's kind of a point at which you assume, like, when we, if you want to go back to programming, programmers are using statements that are true within whatever system or so on coding that they're using. Uh, so it's part of argumentation that you hope the person isn't using false prepositions or um, non-empirical truth. Yeah, and that's exactly what you kind of stole the words out of my mouth. But it's almost like the the propositions are true, but the conclusion is either empirically or logically true. But can it be one or the other? Can it ever be? I I guess it's both. Like that's when it's ultimate true. Like how does that work? Like because I know with like Aristotle and like Plato, like there's these like universal truths, right? That they're trying to, so is that the idea that you're trying to go with like empiricism and logic together? And then that's the truth. I believe that that would be the ultimate goal. And I think that's actually a good fall through into fallacies. So what there's different kinds of fallacies. um, And basically a fallacy is what makes your syllogism false beyond the truth table in a sense. So I think that kind of answers your question, Matt. So, 
There's two different kinds of fallacies. There's informal and formal fallacies. And again, I really want to reiterate to your listeners that this is not my field. I'm not an expert in this field. So if I say anything that is incorrect or not founded in fact, I apologize. Uh, I wouldn't worry about that. Our listeners are very keen to email us when we're wrong. So, okay. you know, if you oh, say something okay. that's really do wrong, someone's going to email us with a very nasty note. Uh, and, uh, you know, I might share with you. I might just not. Keep it I might classy out there, listeners. Just keep it, you know, be reasonable, you know. Uh, okay. But yeah. these are so all anyway. beyond, that, beyond that. Okay. So, so a, fallacy, a fallacy. In short, a formal fallacy would be something that immediately in your truth table, so in your syllogism, that uh, negates the truth. So turns a T into an F, for example, if you can picture it kind of in your mind. Um, but that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. So informal fallacies are kind of like the example that I used, uh, like about you folks being a podcast, but a little more grounded in what we would see on the day-to-day argumentation. So not on the day-to-day, I'm not arguing that you are a podcast. So one of the most common examples of a fallacy, of an informal fallacy, would be the slippery slope argument. So we hear that statement all the time. Right. Well, okay. What's an example of a slippery slope argument? Uh, well, an example would be, and unfortunately, this is at the top of my mind because here in Ottawa, we had what's called the March for Life yesterday oh, yeah. uh, on Parliament Hill from uh, folks that aren't cool with abortion and women's choice. Uh, so a slippery slope argument is often used in arguments about abortion because as soon as you let women have access to abortion, women are going to have sex all the time, and then men are going to have sex all the time, and then there's just going to be children running around. And that's a slippery slope. Yeah. So that doesn't address the fact of, like, however you choose to approach it, but it doesn't address the fact that it's a woman's choice or it doesn't address the fact that it might be a medical issue. That just goes into another argument that actually isn't relevant. Like I've seen um, slippery slope arguments about this topic that end up going all the way into, like, homelessness and stuff like that. Yeah. So right. Okay. So, so it's starting somewhere, ending completely on the abyss. Exactly. Uh, another common one that you would hear would be gambler's fallacy. So can kind of from the name it kind of uh, clues you in but saying you know i used the slot machine and the last 10 times i didn't win so the 11th time i'm definitely gonna win because there's a 50 50 chance of winning well that's not how first of all that's not how probability works no no not really (laughs) and second of all it's just not how arguments work so if i tried to argue to you um again to use like another example at the top of mind um here in the uh on well, on both sides, on the Ottawa and Gatineau side of the Ottawa River, there was lots of flooding recently. Um, so you could say something like, over the last 30 years, there was never flooding, so there's never going to be flooding again. Well, that's not hot. Like, that doesn't actually make any sense, but it's something people say a lot. People do make these kinds of statements. Like, because something hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen again, or vice versa. Yeah, right? like, if it hasn't happened yet, it's bound to happen at any moment. Yeah. Like the fear of earthquakes on the West Coast, like going in elementary and high school, um, basically they replaced the uh, public education videos of nuclear bombs with um, earthquake preparedness videos. And they use the same approach where it's duck and cover underneath your desk, stay away from windows, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I was convinced that at any moment we we're going to have an earthquake and that we were all going to die because um, we hadn't had a major earthquake in and around Vancouver since... Like way back in the day, I guess. So that's um, like a ticking time bomb sort of thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this fallacy in particular, maybe more some, than some others, 
is it can go either way. So you could either say, because we haven't had an earthquake yet, we're bound to have one tomorrow. Mm. Or you could say, because we haven't had one yet, we're never going to have one. Mm. So you're just saying I'm cynical. Basically, yeah. yeah no offense. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but this sort of thinking, um, I know we can talk about it with uh, kind of different examples in mind, but this is the sort of thinking that underlines uh, processes of risk, underlines how we think about risk and how we think about how we really govern our everyday lives. We make these sorts of decisions uh, all the time, like if it's going to rain in the morning, right? Uh, how do we get dressed? Uh, do we bring an umbrella? Do we put on? So like we're like we're talking about these examples, but really they're things that we need. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm looking at Mel here, but it seems like we wouldn't be able to really operate without having some of these, these, these sorts of. Uh, so I think that you bring up a really interesting point. And uh, another thing I wanted to say in sort of my background about why I'm interested in this topic is uh, I went to the University of Ottawa for my undergrad and all art students, anybody doing a bachelor of arts, I don't believe it was extended to social sciences, but everybody had to do a philosophy class. And in the philosophy mm -hmm. class, more than half of it was about basically what I've just described to you, but six weeks, six, seven weeks worth of it. And the idea of why it was a requisite was that all arts fields, and I would argue all of them, including the hard sciences and so on, require you to have an understanding of how argumentation works and critical reasoning. So what you're saying, waking up in the morning, that's having a critical argument, that's having critical reasoning. And that if you're able to recognize things that happen often, um, you know, common ways of arguing that are incorrect, you should have stronger writing. Uh, and I know that when I was a TA at Queens, literally I saw these fallacies in undergraduates' writing. Like, literally, I saw slippery slope arguments, and lo and behold, they don't have a mandatory philosophy class there. If there was a bit here, I'd be chomping at it, because I was <laughs> just about to, again, Mel took the words out of my mouth, but um, I was going to bring up my experiences as a TA and ask you guys to speak about it as well, because one of the things I quickly understood after maybe one semester was that the simple critical thinking skills are lacking, like, um, and confusing i guess opinion and critical reasoning it was one of the huge maybe logical fallacies that uh that i saw in undergrads writing so like what do you what do you think mel i'll pass it over to you like what do you do you see as a ta like, or specifically? Uh, exactly that um i definitely saw slippery slope arguments all the time uh so i was a ta primarily in gender studies oh. so yeah, um I, I guess that's why the example of abortion came to mind because it would be lots of things like if we don't allow women in the workplace and they'll never participate in society and they won't be able to live up to their potential. Mm. Oh, was it something I saw a lot as a TA was something about women's potential that was very important to and, people. And that's almost like linear reasoning, right? It's like if this happens and that happens and that happens and that happens and, that happens, and all of a sudden you're at the bottom of the slope, I guess. Right. And yeah. And you're not at, okay, well, the essay actually asked you to talk about, you know. Women's issues in Canada. Exactly. <laughs> but you haven't actually argued about that yet. So, uh, so aside from these sort of logical fallacies, these sort of syllogisms, um, what are so okay? What's your favorite fallacy? Well, well I'm gonna jump. I'm gonna jump you to there. What's your favorite? Fallacy? I have two, unfortunately. Okay, so, well, two. You can well, have my second favorite. Okay, start um, with the second favorite. We'll, we'll count it down. Second favorite fallacy from Mel. My second favorite, and why it's so close to being my favorite, is because it's the name of season one, episode two of The West Wing. 
which is post hoc aerial hawk. So West Wing, my favorite show of all time. Can you repeat that? Yeah, say, say that a bit slower. <laughs> so post hoc, yeah. which means after this, so post after this uh, is hawk. Ergo, so because or therefore, propter. Uh, sorry, ergo is therefore, and then propter is because. Sorry, my Latin classes are a little ways behind <laughs> me. And then hawk again. So post hawk, after this, ergo, therefore, propter hawk, because of this. So it's like saying, and I, I came up with a syllogism for you guys too. <laughs> so one of the reasons I love the West Wing is because even though it started in 1999, uh, ended in 2005, six. It is so relevant to current affairs that it's actually somewhat horrifying. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts is called The West Wing Leakly, and they have something that they say while watching it, which is Trump ay ay ay. So it's so it's just parts of when they're watching The West Wing from literally, well, oh. I guess just under ten years ago, where they're saying, "Oh my God, that is Trump." Trump. So the example I came up with you for a syllogism that would represent post hoc ergo propter hoc is the West Wing describes current events. Current events are echoed. Uh, current events echo the West Wing. Therefore, the West Wing caused current events. Oh, okay. Now oh, I understand oh. it. Ah, brain. <laughs> Take it away, Phil. Or I, I guess like another example. Um, you were talking about earthquakes, like on the well, not not San Andreas, but. Oh, West. Yeah. Um, That's the San Andreas. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good job. Yeah. Okay. The old ring of fire. The ring down, of fire. Down, yeah. um, so you could say something like earthquakes caused paranoia among school teachers when Matt was going to school. Well, was it earthquakes that caused it or was it a post Cold War mentality? Yeah. Like, of the unknown that's kind of a little I think more it was just because a... matt was going to school and everyone was paranoid yeah. but yeah. well we also had um like 150 foot tall cedar trees that were like surrounding our playing surfaces and playgrounds so those are the things i was actually afraid of like well, those things come Probably down for on good outside. Reason. and it was like hey there's your uh, marshall station right underneath those trees yikes ay 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 so another <laughs> name for this fallacy is false cause False cause. Okay. But if you say post hoc, ergo propter hoc, you sound like more of a badass. So oh, you're why. definitely badass when you say definitely. that. Definitely. And uh, so Mel and I, huge West Wing fans. Uh, huge West Wing fan. Yeah. Matt. Yeah. Watched the whole thing with my wife probably twice, I would say. Yeah. I think yeah. we're on our yeah. third. We're on our third run now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we watched it uh, during the Obama administration and uh, oh. we got to the end of it. Uh, just as the the actual like in real life elections were kind of ramped, like you know, they're getting like the ramped Trump up. They're... It was just before Trump was nominated. Kind yeah, of thing was oh. when we finished. And... I watched it for the first time. Uh, George Bush, uh, W. Bush. That's uh, and I yeah. saw it, and the second time was through Obama. Yeah, yeah. it uh, it's it's going to definitely be one of these shows that we I I think that we're going to continually return to. Uh, through different administrations in the United States. It, it is, it's timeless. Oh, it's got staying power, yeah. It's like and, The Wire, right? It's like one of those uh, shows that just sort of stick around. And what I find fascinating is, if even if you look at the wardrobe, the costume selections, everyone is wearing timeless clothing. Except some of the suits are pretty damn baggy. Yeah. We wear, well, not we, men identifying folks wear tighter suits now yes but then you look at the suits that um you know the current administration is wearing and they're just as baggy i'm sorry but trump wears baggy ass 
low like do you think he thinks it's the 80s or 90s still no it's the new york power suit the new york uh, private true. sector power suit has always been looser has always had wider shoulders okay you you mm-hmm. we're, we'll get into a discussion about suits on another episode okay so you brought up trump and i think that's a good segue into my absolute favorite fallacy which is called ad hominem to quoque so you're probably okay, noticing whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, you give me a sec that. give me a sec <laughs> So there's lots of Latin and logical fallacies, and that goes back to the whole Aristotle connection. Although, yes, I know he was Greek. I think I have too many INs in this. <laughs> so I'll start with ad hominem. So it's A-D hominem. Wait, I know that one. That's against the person. Yeah. So ad hominem is a whole category of fallacies that have to do with an attack on a person's beliefs or character uh, or appearance. Like an ad hominem attack on my character. Exactly. Right, yeah. So it's like if you try to make a well-reasoned argument about whatever and I'm like, your well, you're a Blue also. Jays fan, so <laughs> obviously. Therefore, you're wrong. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but to quoque, uh, also known as U2, so the full fallacy being ad hominem to quoque, or commonly known as the U2 fallacy, not the band, T-O-O. So it would be like if you were saying something. I Okay. Phil, are you a big uh, a vegetarian vegan rights fan? Um, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. But you had steak last night. So? So you can never say anything against vegans or vegetarian. Or you can never say anything in favor of vegetarianism because you ate steak. So just because you've done something doesn't mean that you can't make an argument in favor of it. Well, poop. <laughs> so there's this amazing, amazing cartoon, and I'll send it to you guys. Um, I don't know the origin of it, but my experience with it is from the Wikipedia page in 2007 when I was taking my theory of knowledge course. And it's basically this Scottish – or sorry, Sutherland Highlander, and he's wearing this huge hat, like comically large. Like it takes up more than half of the – picture kind of thing um and then uh like upper class english woman with you know a nice dress and a feathered cap comes up to him and she says how do you like my hat and he says by jove what extraordinary headgear you women wear uh and then the hypocrisy being that he was wearing a huge hat uh so he can't say anything about her hat oh okay. all right yeah Here's what you're talking about yeah ad hominem to <laughs> so could you could you say uh since you're uh wearing a baltimore orioles hat um i could say something like oh what bad team you root for well it's not true first of all <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, besides the point, what that's i could not say true. is you can't say that i have a bad team because you have a bad team too. Okay, yeah. See, that's so I was getting okay. I got it. I got it. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here with an example of my own. I was a blackjack dealer for a year, so I seen a ton of this gambler's fallacy. So I actually wanted to kind of return to that if we could. Um, what is it? How would you describe it, or what would you call it when you have um, somebody at the table who knows that they uh, the odds are stacked against them, but they continue to play because they're like, well, the next hand can be a winner. The next hand could be a winner. Or if I stay in here long enough, eventually I'm going to win. Is that the gambler's fallacy or is that one of these other sort of um, uh, fallacies that you sort of mentioned here? 
or anything else? Yeah, I think that what you've described is kind of the basis of the gambler's fallacy. So I remember when I learned about probability for the first time, you know, like if you flip a coin 25 times or 50 times, it should come up 25 times heads and 25 times tails, but that's not actually in reality what's going to end up happening. Um, So I think what folks are saying when they're at the table in front of you is because it's come up tails 25 times, the 26th time it's going to come up heads sort of thing. So I, um, yeah, it would be the gambler's fallacy, but that particular case they're not making, well, I guess they are making an argument Mm. in a sense like they're arguing why they should continue gambling but fallacies are kind of dependent on the fact that you're arguing a point and i i would have players who would literally say you are a bad dealer and i would be like no you are a bad player and they wouldn't have any rebuttal to that i didn't hang out there too long at the uh, old casino i Went on my merry little way after I... Uh, it doesn't seem like you would. Yeah, so now it yeah. sounds more like false cause. Now it sounds more like post hoc ergo propter hoc. Mm. So they're saying that oh. the reason they're losing is because you can't deal the cards correctly. Yeah, exactly. The reason they're losing is because probability or you know, odds in a casino are complicated, ultimately. Yeah, and I was a bit of a killer on the table as well. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I think the cat knocked something down in the yeah, other room. So <laughs> um, okay, so... Um, you know, you talked a little bit about, um, and I hate using this word, but like real world applicability of, of these sort of things. And we've been dancing around it a little bit, but how do you see an understanding of this uh, beyond the classroom in our kind of everyday lives? Um, do you think this is something that people should, should study broadly? Should we pay more attention to it? Um, maybe not the Latin or maybe the Latin, I don't know. Uh, so, so what do you think uh, people should do with uh, logical fallacies and uh, truth tables and syllogisms? So I have a couple answers to that question. And I think what I'll talk about first is your point about the Latin. So I'm a big fan of Latin. I think it has greatly impacted my ability to write, to understand how grammar works, to understand other languages. But I realize that there's a reality where not everybody can learn Latin and that there's definitely a lot of privilege in that. Uh, however, when you give something a name, when you give one of these argumentation, uh, these argumentative, uh, fallacies or ways of approaching arguments and critical thinking like Matt and I were kind of going back and forth on a few minutes ago, this reification by giving something a name, I think makes it easier for you to recognize when you're doing it yourself. So if you know what a U2 fallacy is i personally think you'd be less likely to use it uh you know same goes for false cause i mean things like gambler's fallacy and even slippery slope i think for the most part we're not necessarily going to use it like we know it's wrong but there's some of them where we do attack the speaker like there are lots of ad hominem things like i i can even think of reviews i've read where people are actually attacking the author not the work so i think that there's value in assigning a name to something it's um, almost like you can get into a slippery slope yourself when you're trying to battle someone who's going down a slippery slope themselves. Like you get whoa. going down the slippery slope together and you're just slipping and sliding. That's this very, very meta. meta. Yeah. Oh. Maybe we should hang out sometime. Yeah, maybe we should. Hey, easy there, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> kids get separated. Does that answer too. your question? Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, fabulously. Um, when you were talking, uh, the, the first thing that came to my mind uh, was this notion of civility. And it seems to me like if we're having these 
discussions. We're having open debates and we're keeping these fallacies in check. So we're checking our, our, our logic and our argumentation styles. Seems to me like we could have a, a heightened level of civility with each other. Do you, is that something that you would agree with? So I find your word civility really fascinating and a really interesting point. So I mentioned my favorite fallacy, Tukwokwe. Uh, uh, in that picture, it actually has a, a Sutherland Highlander and an upper-class Englishwoman. And there's definitely an aspect of racism, quite frankly, in that and um, classism. And I think that civility in that sense has been a long part of how we understand logic, uh, how we understand who can make an argument and for what reasons. And I think that maybe one of the negative sides of fallacies and of argumentation, truth tables, syllogisms, is that there's definitely a class basis to it. So I don't want to get into that side of civility too much, but I think that if there was a general awareness of these things, uh, that yes, we could have debates that would be more based in the value of an argument rather than the value of the speaker. Yeah, and it's almost like um, the dual meaning of argument itself, right? Like we're like we're argumenting, right? Like we're having arguments right now, but we're not arguing, you know? Exactly. Right. And like I feel like we don't know how to have a debate. It's like bless her heart, my grandmother and my mom's mom uh, taught us all the value of arguing, and she would always play like the devil's advocate for us. She's like, okay, well everybody is in the same boat here. I'm just gonna go play the con side and see what how these people react, right? So for sure. Um, so when I'm thinking about applications, I'm, I think I'm thinking about political analysis, like, and you mentioned Trump already, like, how can you use these logical constructs to deconstruct, uh, the flimsy logic of Donald Trump, maybe? Well, I guess I, I'm going to kind of combine answer part of Phil's question that I don't think I quite addressed with my answer to yours, Matt. So, um, I just feel like sometimes when I'm watching or reading some of these things that Trump says, uh, I because I have had a lot of experience, I shouldn't say that, because I have a strong interest in this field and because critical reasoning is just something that fascinates me, I can kind of just see in my mind all of the words that apply to each thing that he's doing wrong in his argumentation. Um, and I guess where it becomes complicated is that Logical fallacies and syllogisms don't take into account emotion or politics or, uh, I don't know, hatred of one perspective or another or the passion. I guess that's similar to hatred. Passion that can be behind your words and how your words themselves, even if the words are meaningless, which often I would argue that they are, there's a way of saying them like there's oratory. I don't think we can argue that somehow Trump has taken up an oratory that's effective. I'm not sure how, but he's certainly done so. So I think that in order that you have the ability to identify these things might be one way of helping to kind of uh, deconstruct and start to come to terms with how these arguments do work. Like, why are these arguments that have slippery slopes working? Well, because slippery slope arguments are attractive. They speak to us. Like, we have a fear of an absolute. Uh, we don't want, I, I can't think of a specific example, but we don't necessarily want 
nobody to have a gun because then nobody can protect themselves or something. And it's interesting with slippery slopes. Um, they are emotionally charged. Like you're like, you're running down that slippery slope. And those are the emotions that take you there. And it's usually fear and anxiety. For sure. Yeah. And um, the thing that I was thinking about uh, when you said um, that when we look at what Trump says or what other politicians say, and that, you know, they are just words. I'm constantly being, I have to remind myself and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but words are not concepts. Uh, concepts have an effect. And I think what, you know, Trump's oratory is accomplishing is that he's turning words into concepts that as soon as they're said, there's a whole lot of other things that are instantaneously connected to them. So he doesn't need to make logical sense out of the words because the the choice of concepts that he's using carry so much emotion, so much baggage. They mean so much. Now, when we say abortion, it's automatically linked to a whole bunch of other things. We don't need to necessarily construe a logical sentence with it anymore. You can just throw it in. And we saw this post 9-11 with things like terrorism, security, uh, and, and the, these sorts of things, right? I think you're, you've hit it right on the head, but I am just going to take uh, take a swipe at me. Yes, I'm just going to take a little swipe at you on one aspect, which is the use of the word logical. So I know that logical, usually how we use it, is something that uh, seems to check out, like seems to be based in fact or empiricism. Uh, but in the sense that I'm talking, and this is the only way I'm bringing it up, Trump probably is logical a lot of the time. Right. So he probably is making syllogistic arguments that do make sense. So you talked about concepts. So if you invent a concept or you invent a perspective, it might turn out, and I can't think of a specific example, unfortunately, but it might turn out that, again, if you think of it kind of like a programming or you just think you imagine that you have uh, a table in front of you, your first statement might be true, even though it makes categorically no sense. You might have two true statements and that the conclusion, the end of the speech or the argument or whatever is going to be true. So it's absolutely possible that Trump is making logically sound arguments. Right. I guess. Uh, so the language really that we should be using is uh, maybe um, logical, reserved for the things that you're talking about, comprehensible, uh, cohesive, uh, comprehensive. I don't know. Some of those other words um, you know, they make sense, but you know, the, you know, you, you can string a bunch of words together and it's like uh, gibberish, uh, but it might still be logical. Well, I think that's where you reach the limits of, you know, truth tables and syllogisms and even a priori and uh, post priori knowledge. Uh, you know, like it doesn't take into account the kind of circumstances surrounding it. So maybe that's one of the reasons that it's fallen out of fashion in some ways. And it's really based in the humanities, which I don't know if you've discussed it up to this point, but how that's not really in vogue anymore. Oh, uh, sorry. What do you mean by that? Like uh, the humanities not in vogue. Yeah. This is, is a that thorny... too down the rabbit hole. Well, it's, it's down that rabbit hole, okay. but I think, um, I think uh, Mel just set herself up for a future episode. I think so. Yeah. We're going to have her on to defend. I think so. You know what? We're, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to jot that down that we're going to have a discussion about, uh, I'm, I'm going to preemptively call it the fall of the humanities, but I, but they haven't fallen. Uh, I don't think that they should or will, but we'll, we'll talk about that some other time. Matt, you had another point. This is 
less of a point, more of a question, and it is quite open-ended, so uh, uh, have at it. Um, Matt loves Do you think uh, Trump is logical? Because I don't know that all this stuff is a big master plan. I think he's just sort of winging it. I have to be honest that I have somewhat disengaged with the Trump question, so I don't feel that I would be in a position to judge that necessarily. Um, and I definitely fully own the fact that there's a certain privilege in be able, being able to just turn the, turn my ear and just not pay attention yeah, the anymore. Privilege is being Canadian. Yeah, that too. <laughs> um, and I honestly just kind of scroll past the articles when I read them now, so I can't really answer that in a way that would be critical. But I would say that probably more often than not, he would be setting himself up to make arguments that would be logical in the sense that I've explained, but don't necessarily that they're they're not necessarily ground, grounded in fact. It's almost as if they post priori or whatever, like after the fact, um, the speechwriters and whatnot, and the people who actually have logical abilities are trying to make sense out of the whatever he tweeted out at three a.m. after watching Fox News all day. Well, he seems to be in a in a position where he believes that everything that is said is a truth. So you can almost set uh, yourself up to create truths if you're creating a system in which you are the only one that can say truths. Like the king of the high castle. Exactly. Be- be- before we um, totally turn this conversation into a conversation about politics, I want to bring it back uh, to something that Melv, uh, you know, said that was one of her interests uh, in uh, truth table syllogisms and logical fallacies. And that is the link between literature. Um, and um, I'm kind of interested to to understand, uh, just based on that last point, that you know, within a work of fiction, where you are creating your your world, you are creating a version of a truth that exists bound between covers. How how can these sort of logic tables operate if they do? Um, or maybe you know, I'd, I'd just like to hear you talk about the link between literature and and uh, and this. For sure. And I think that's it's actually a perspective I haven't necessarily thought of before, but uh, I go in and out of what kind of genres I'm interested in, but I'm always interested in uh, young adult YA teen fiction. And lately I've been especially interested in fantasy, teen fantasy. Uh, and it's absolutely true that uh, true in the conversational sense, not a logical <laughs> sense. Uh, <laughs> Let's not get bogged down in semantics here. We'll try not to be uh, pedantic, uh, so it will not be a non sequitur. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so these words, (laughs) worlds that are created, the world building that's done in fantasy, uh, and one of my favorite uh, authors, Sarah J. Maas, Maas, M-A-A-S, does an amazing job that I would almost characterize as high fantasy. It's absolutely true that the things that she describes aren't empirically... Uh, true. Like right. They, yeah. th- there are no witches flying around on dragons. I mean, but I'm in aware fantasy, of. like what I hear about fantasy and it's something I've read a lot. Um, you need a like coherent like world where like magic has to work and it has to work in a certain way or else like, so it has its own logical like consistency, right? Exactly. So it creates its own logical basis and there are limits to it as well. Limits that might be the exact inverse of our reality. And, uh, and, you know, those who um, 
read or watch or listen to these works get really ticked off. They get really mad when an author decides to disobey that logic they had previously set, right? Absolutely. And I think that is a commentary on fandom as well. Like fandom builds itself on the logic inherent in how the world was built. So I'm thinking Star Trek and so on. Like you've completely pointed it out that when the logic is uh, is denied, there is a huge backlash. So I think that, you know, to answer your question, it's absolutely present and similarly to how I describe that sometimes when I read articles and I can just see popping up the issues, similarly, I don't see those issues in works of fiction that I love. And I do see them in ones that I, you know, I'm a little skeptical about. Right. Yeah. So it's almost as if like the, um, the curtain has been pulled back and you can see the mechanics and structures of story. And in some ways that enhances it because you can appreciate a really well-crafted and spun narrative. But then you can see, especially in like young adult and teen fiction, you probably see a lot of formulas being played out. Exactly. I, c- I can see the coding of the Matrix and I see the woman yeah. in the wed- red dress and I'm not always happy about it. You know, OK, so going into this conversation, I, I had I, I didn't know uh, a lot of this. I'm going to be honest. You know, I was uh, quite naive about what a logical fallacy was. Um, but one thing that I certainly did not think about was that within a certain realm, within a certain uh, world of truth, that you still need to abide by certain logical practices, and you could still fall victim to certain logical fallacies. Now, like that opens up a whole new way to read Aristotle and Plato, and to say, you know what, they weren't the kind of um, absolute uh, logical mathematicians, uh, that there were areas for creativity, that the arts were integrated in with these sorts of logical, philosophical discussions that they were having. You know, this is, this, uh, maybe we'll, we'll that, I'm that, nodding so much that my yeah. neck is starting to hurt. I, I completely agree. And I think that you've exactly hit upon the fact that I'm still talking about this 10 years after I first heard about it, that it always kind of wiggled in my mind and is something that kind of helps with my understanding of reality such as it is. So going from fiction and literature to um, media and discourse analysis. So before Phil brought up literature, I had already written down discourse analysis and media studies. Uh, aren't you, aren't so, you such a bright guy? So do you... Um, yeah, I'm bright because I think along the same lines as you, I can't say. So do you... Can you see the same thing in the way a newscast is constructed or TV shows that you see in literature where you're like, oh, this is very formulaic? Like, do you have the same issue or appreciation for when it's done well? For sure. And I think uh, I am just going to separate out newscast from, uh, you know, general pop culture or a show. I like so, to smush those together. Yeah. Like... <laughs> uh, and I know sometimes that newscasts can certainly yeah. seem like fiction and, and certainly I sometimes hope they or wish they were. Um, but I think that there's an interesting argument to be made to connect what Phil said about if you create a set of rules and a set of realities they can become true even if they're quote-unquote not. Um, and I certainly see that in newscasting sometimes where something uh, that is seen to be a truth um, isn't necessarily. Uh, and um, But in terms of, you know, media analysis, uh, like of pop culture, I'm a huge pop culture fan, especially of anything that has a fandom. Uh, 
know, West Wing, Star Trek, all the good stuff. Why? Why? Sorry. Why fandom? Like, why is that interesting? Is that is that a thing that makes it interesting to you? Um, I I'm not sure exactly. Uh, that must have been like a bit of a Freudian slip there. That I no, even, that's interesting. No, it, no, it is. Because, it, I agree. Because it's, uh, my thought was that you approach these shows. Obviously, it's clear that you approach it like a someone from the arts or the social sciences or philosophy. Um, but then if you look at shows that have fan followings, it's like it's very social sciencey, where it's like you can look at them at a convention or you can see them online and, and things like this. I am extremely picky when it comes to my consumption of pop culture. Uh, Phil will tell you that it's really, really hard to get me to go see a movie. We can never decide on a movie. Yeah, because I'm, I'm a bit like that. Too. I have a really hard time committing my time. I have a hard time sitting still. At the best of times, I have anxiety, so I sometimes, if I'm not invested in something, I just go completely out of there and I'm not even present anymore. So I have to really buy into something, and I think it might be that fandoms give, that they lend a certain credibility, and that might be why that comes out. Do you find that um, you can hyper-focus on the sort of background stuff, like the superstructure behind like some movie, like... I find when I start overanalyzing something and I'm usually like, oh, look what that person is wearing and like, look how they position this person over there. It's more like the human thing. But when you start thinking about how the thing's put together because the thing is maybe boring, you get like way too into that. <laughs> like, Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And I, um, I I love looking at those larger structures. And do I... you comment to it uh, to Phil? Because this is a question for yeah. Do you does Phil watch stuff silently or because I'm a talker when I watch things and Mel, oh, I'm 100% my Mel a gets too. gets furious at me. Yeah, uh, you know it it depends on um, how, how how often we've watched the thing. Mm-hmm. So like I'm I'm gonna use the example of Harry Potter and Harry Potter has a fandom uh, the the films uh, they, it has a fandom has a following. Yeah, I think I've it, heard of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, you know, I think we might have watched all of them maybe three times, four times now. Um, you know, I increasingly find things that uh, will pop out, and I will just talk about that. Like, hey, did you ever notice this thing that's connected to that? Or, oh my god, I just realized this. Um, but if we hadn't had watched them, I'm sitting quiet. Like, I'm just absorbing. Uh, and I get a little annoyed if uh, Mel starts to talk. But I, I in my defense, uh, what I've tried to do, especially, so Harry Potter is a good example. Lord of the Rings would be another one. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Pirates the of the Caribbean. Yep. Pirates yeah, all that Caribbean. stuff. Um, I, I tend to try to point out more like facts. So even the most recent time that we've watched The West Wing, I try to observe, you know, this particular thing was based on this or, you know, He's wearing like that camera cut was clearly incorrect and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> the cat just walked in the room, so I think it kind of like broke our train of thought a little bit there. Uh, Matt, uh, I'm gonna give you the last question uh, for Mel <laughs> as as uh, our cat jumps up on you. <laughs> um, okay, if you were back in the TA uh, uh, room and you had to sort of pass on some tips to your student rather than trying to teach them Latin. Um, what are some kind of tips that you have for critical reasoning, logical thinking, presenting arguments, anything like that? Like what are like your, maybe your top three or your top two or your one? Three, two, one, go. 
<laughs> no pressure. So I think that one of the main things I would say would be to encourage a student to pick something that they personally are passionate about, whatever that may be, and look for or discuss with someone uh, like a counterpoint and really get them to see what riles them up about it, like what frustrates oh, them when they talk about it. So even if it's something like sports or whatever, like if I was just to tell you that I don't like the Jays because they always win, which is not true. No, that's not true at all. No, that's, but <laughs> that is a fallacy. That is That is wrong. But stuff like that. Like I would encourage them to find the things that kind of rankle them uh, to help them write their own work. So once you've realized that in something that you love and something that's important to you, to really focus, okay, well, this TA obviously cares about gender studies. So when I write about, you know, um, marriage rights or something, I probably shouldn't use horrible arguments like that person did about the Jays, even though they were right that the Jays suck. <laughs> so that would probably be my main tip in how to kind of look for it in a real way. And again, back to the sort of Latin comment, like I, I do, I'm definitely cognizant of the fact that it doesn't speak to people. And I think that one of the best ways of connecting with people is by having them analyze the impact on their own life. Um, and also, uh, but I'm a big fan of formal argumentation in case that's not obvious <laughs> and of formal arguments in general and forming them in a logical and coherent way. And any former students of mine will definitely tell you that I was harsh on grammar, harsh on argument forming, um, because I think that there is value in clearly articulating. And while I definitely understand that it's not always easy, like I once said to one of my classes, like, until we live in an anarchist society where there aren't formal grammar rules and where we can communicate with dots and slashes, until then I need to be able to read your paper without, uh, you know, blatant spelling mistakes. Or more importantly, though, blatant structural problems. So yeah. I hope that answers your question. Oh, yeah, totally. More so than I anticipated. <laughs> so um, you've heard it here from Mel, but uh, find a passion Get a guide with whom you can construct a counterpoint, debate openly, and follow some basic structure, folks. Punctuation, spelling, and argumentation styles. Mel, it was an absolute hoot to have you on. That was... <laughs> that was great. I like that. That was great. I, I you know, I had a lot of fun. Thank you for being yeah, thank on. Thank you. My uh, pleasure. You can reach us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M-P-O-D. Uh, you can send Matt and myself an email at semiintellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher or on other podcatchers. Please leave us a rating, a review. Tell us how we're doing. If you have any questions for Mel, send them to us on our email. Uh, we'll be glad to post uh, her answers up on our page. We'll develop a little page. Uh, actually, it's already up. The page is, is, is made. Uh, additions and corrections. So if you have something that you want to correct Mel on, Email us that as well. Uh -oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Um, but anyway, that was that was absolutely great. Thank you so much for being on, Mel. Thanks again. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. See you all next time. Talk soon. Hey everybody, welcome back. Uh, it's uh, Matt, Bill, 
and we've kept Mel around for recommendations. Um, Matt, um, you're playing us some tunes right now. Tell us what we're listening to. Uh, this is one of my favorite bands from back in the day. Uh, they're called Delhi to Dublin, so like New Delhi and uh, Dublin, Ireland. Uh, and it's literally that. It's a mixture of Bhangra music, um, traditional Indian music, and uh, uh, Irish, like Celtic music. I thought I heard some Celtic kind yeah. of uh, stuff going yeah. on. The and then it's also like electronic style. So I don't know. I like it a lot. The best of everything, basically. Yeah, it totally yeah, reminds me of home. Mel, uh, what are your recommendations uh, for us today? Well, before I get into those, I'm going to give you the elevator pitch of me. So, feminist, fangirl, uh, love pop culture, YA. Uh, I'm wearing a Buffy Vampire Slayer shirt right now. It's a very nice t-shirt. So, just with that in mind, so my first recommendation is Riverdale. And this is very unlike me. Normally, I don't recommend TV shows that are on or very easy to get a hold of. Uh, so it's based on the Archie comics, which I adored when I was a kid. Um, this series reminds me so much of Veronica Mars, which I loved when I was a teenager. And it, it there are so many problems with this show. Oh, my gosh. There are <laughs> lots of, Tons of problems. problematic, quote unquote, things. Logical but it fallacies. is so good. I'm watching it for a second time right now. So, I knew about the first time. I didn't know about no, it. No, I've, I've been watching it again. That's what I, I was... I've only heard good things about Riverdale, actually. Without spoiling it, uh, 10 seconds, how did you think it ended? Did you like the ending? Well, actually, the episode you and I, Phil, watched together wasn't the last episode. The last episode just came out. Oh. Uh, but we know who the murderer is now. If, so the murderer, uh, I, w- I was a little surprised and a little disappointed, actually. I was hoping for the reasoning to be a little bit more solid. Is that 10 seconds? Yeah, that's 10 seconds. But maybe, but did they get into uh, an ad hominem to Kwakwe? Is that the failed reasoning? I'm, or uh, Well, not in that no? particular okay, part, no, but no. I'm, the whole thing is full of ad hominem because it's All a right. bunch of teenage girls. Uh, Riverdale, what, what, what else? <laughs> well, I mentioned it when we were talking earlier, but my favorite series of YA right now, well, one of two, uh, is the Throne of Glass series by Sarah J. Moss. Amazing, badass heroine. I work at a bookstore. I've recommended it to men, women, young and old. It is an amazing book. Uh, I personally wouldn't consider it high fantasy. I would, not wouldn't. Uh, and um, just love it. Uh, dragons, witches, but in the best possible way. When you say high fantasy, is that like very fantasy? Like lots of dragons, lots of magic, like that sort it's of like thing. It's like where, is it or is it like where you have to like get eat shrooms and then you can understand what's going on? Well, all of the above, uh, but nice. Tolkien is considered high fantasy. Oh. So it's a world, actually, um, that kind of operates on a logical construct. So that has created its own system and has created its own rules. So it's where the world itself is an act is like a work of fiction 
of an in and of itself versus like your average fantasy which is like i don't know still amazing but might just be like on a spaceship or whatever yeah okay cool uh do you have something do you have another one a third one for us my third one is just a shout out to what i'm doing tomorrow which is collecting garbage for the great canadian shoreline cleanup uh, it's sponsored by the Vancouver Aquarium, but this is not a plug, I swear. No, they don't support the podcast. No, they uh-huh. do not. But um, if they wanted to, our email address is semiintellectualgmail.com. For them, I'm quite pricey. Anyways, Which means not before we get into the pricey. ethics of aquariums, let's just get right away from that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so I'm a Girl Guide leader, and I absolutely love it. And, uh, you know, as part of my feminist side and of... Um, just learning all about, you know, girls and how they live today and like what scares them, what they love, what they want to do with their lives. Amazing. It's very rewarding. Fantastic. Matt, are you like me and when you come home from a hard day's work and your hands, face, knees, ankles are dry, you just can't stand it? Like you just. No, I don't work hard. Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> I can't stand it when I have dry, chapped hands. I also can't stand it when my hands are dry and I'm stressed. Uh, my recommendation comes uh, from Bath and Body Works, and it is the aromatherapy line. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Go on, keep going. <laughs> this is very serious. I know it is. It's the aromatherapy <laughs> line stress relief uh, body lotion. Um, the one I like is the eucalyptus. Why are you laughing? Because it's hilarious. <laughs> Matt, I'm going to tell you, there are some days uh, where I couldn't function without having this. A uh, couple drops has a nice soothing smell. Uh, so on, on the label, I'm reading the label. Soothing eucalyptus essential oil and tea help calm feelings of stress and uncertainty. Isn't that great? Honestly, <laughs> folks, if you're looking for a, a body lotion... It's it's absolutely fantastic. I'm telling you, it's great. No, stop laughing. No, I'm very serious. Ah, thank you for sharing. All right, well, that's my recommendation. If you want a body lotion, whatever. Um, want to tell them how they can reach us, Phil? Yeah. Okay. So you can get you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore sim underscore eod. That's the simpod. You can email us at semiintellectualgmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we have a cat on the table, oh my god, we gotta end this. Alright, until next time folks, thanks a lot.